So yeah, the, you know, um, the Bible says uh, that Abraham was looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. So when I, when I, uh, the name of our church, New Life City, is to echo that. See, Abraham was not looking for When he came into the land that he was to receive for an inheritance, he didn't possess it. For Abraham was looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. It's such a fantastic verse. It's such a fantastic concept woven in there. And and, uh, it says so much about Abraham. More and more as I study, I think Abraham knew... I tend to think he knew more and more as I study. And and uh, Abraham was promised to, to be a blessing to all the nations. So he says, I don't know what this thing that God's up to, but he's up to something. And it's bigger than what I see here. Because look, God said, look at the stars, look at the sand, that's your inheritance. And And so, he had an enlarged heart for an enlarged inheritance. Anyway, so um, that's how we began our, our, our established our church. And the city has to have foundations. So you say, well, what's what's happening here? And here's where I want to give a little a little conversation before we get into what we have here about um, about the Bible. Just so y'all know, I have a Bible. I'm the only pastor nobody's ever seen preach from a Bible. Um, this is my New King James Version. And uh, people ask, what do I like? I like them all pretty much. It's, it's, it's strange. I, I use more and more different ones, but I like them all. I use the English Standard Version, but, you know, it has little things here and there, but... Still, what I have in mind is when it comes to the church and leadership and government, here's what you'll find. There are groups that traditionally they will, they will, they will, they will build a government for their church. And I've, I've made an observation as kind of being a student of what's going on in the world, what's going on in history. And here's the observation I've made. That typically, church governments very profoundly reflect the civil governments that people live in. And, and I think there's actually some reality to the fact that, of that. Because look, what we don't have in the Bible is any kind of a clear handbook that says this is how this thing gets governed. It's just not there. And so the Baptists who are wildly democratic go to the Bible and they see democracy. And everywhere where they can find a hint of democracy, they highlight it and say, here's democracy. And I'm always, I'm I'm amused by that. Uh, in America, the church sort of reflects the corporate structure because um, it's because it's not just the civil governments, but it's our corporate structure. So if you go inside a church, it has all kinds of boards and committees and permission giving structures, and and it, it just reflects the it, even how they talk about markets and and it reflects that. And this has frustrated lots of people over time. And it's not a small frustration to me. So some have uh, Episcopal forms of government. Uh, the Catholic Church is, reflects more like a monarchy kind of a government. And, and you'll, just, you'll just see this. So <laughs> New Life City is an independent church. And we have, uh, say, well, look, how are we governed? And 
I had some friends that, you know, have challenged me over time. What do you guys think? Y'all just started this thing yourselves or something? As in you started the whole movement of God in the world? Because that is what, what tends to happen is a movement begins and, and we act as if this is, this is it. And um, I, I haven't been immune to that. So I'm, I'm very aware of these things. And what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to talk about principles of how churches are led and how, and how um, leaders come to be leaders and what those leaders are. Stuff that's in the Bible. And what I'm not going to do is to say to you, uh, we do this because this is what the Bible says to do. I'm, I say this from time to time, but please get this. What we would prefer God had done would either give us a law book or a book of standard operating procedures, a manual. And, you know, we have something close to that in the law of Moses, although if you really understand the law of Moses, you'll see that it, there's like kind of like three versions of it. book Deuteronomy it's not without suggestiveness that it's named the second law the second giving of the law um, the Levitical codes are kind of they kind of stand alone as, so you know we begin with a decalogue and it expands and we get the Levitical codes and then we and then we get <laughs> Moses passing off the scene and we get the second law so look, the Bible is more of an account of God's dynamic relationship to humanity unfolding in history than it is like a handbook or um, any, like I said, any kind of standard operating procedures. It's much more. God has given us, as someone said, this is God's love letters to his people. I remember <coughs> we got any old Bill Gothard people. <laughs> People say they don't understand the Bible. Remember, he would used to say, well, that's because this, this is God's mail written to his family. You shouldn't read other people's mail. <laughs> but, but very much of what's happening in the Bible, understand, we're reading a thing and we're all this into us. It wasn't directly written to us, but it's for us. And so what all of us are doing is like we're working at it and... And, and teasing out some things. And the reason people come to this church is because the way we unpack things, you've come into a peaceable agreement with it. I have no doubt that any one of you, if you started a church, you would modify. And I would be the last one to say, oh, that's completely wrong. I mean, it's possible to do some stuff that's wrong, but what I really find more often is when it comes to church government and how churches are led, it's way more possible to do a whole lot of things that you have right reasons for doing. You follow? So having said all that, I'm going to dive into this business of church leadership offices and government and um, talk to leaders because look, if you're going to talk to leaders, one of the big questions ought to be, where do church leaders come from? Who are they? What, what's that all about? So here we go. First Timothy chapter three, we'll jump right into controversy as we begin. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Not a recent convert, or he might be puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace or into the snare of the devil. Now, this is a lot. Now, so let's start here. If it's trustworthy saying, if anyone desires 
It says to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. So a little piece of information here. Um, there's, no, there's no word office of in that text. So the, so the actual translation reflects how we function now or how we function out of that or how somebody functioned at the time. This is an English translation. If anyone desires, and the word can just be translated supervision or supervisory. The word is the word used for overseer. The, the office of thing is added. So in other words, but it says it's a good thing to want to be a leader. And so what does, what, what does that mean? And then here we go with, oh boy, my favorite, non-favorite word. Well, I, I'm not there yet. Um, I'll come to it. Uh, let me, because I, I want to flow a little bit here. We're all familiar with some words about leaders in the church. Like, for instance, the most common word we use is what? What's the most common word we use for a church leader? What? Pastor. How many times is it found in the Bible? One. One, the shepherd. One. A, a shepherd teacher, pastor teacher. It's a hyphenated word by most people's accounting. So once. but. Literally, almost the entire church has adopted the idea of it. Well, we like the imagery. We like the imagery of a, a shepherd and sheep kind of imagery. We like that. And Jesus gave us that kind of imagery in John. And, and we want to imitate Jesus. And so, so it's just interesting. How, how did that happen? How did that, how did that morph that way? When the word here is this word overseer, which can be translated as, uh, it has been transferred, uh, translated as um, um, bishop or elder. So in a lot of translations, elder, elder is the most common and it's a carryover from the Old Testament. Or, or, or it's a carryover through the interbiblical period, really. And so the, the word that we have in the, in the Greek language that's used the most, because I told you pastor was one, and the word elder is 64 times. All right. Now, That could be a lot of confusion. And essentially, if you, if you look real hard at what the Bible uses, essentially you get the original apostles. Although, if you study your Bible closely, guess what you, you'll find there's like 25 times that persons are, def, are described with the word apostle. There is the, there is the original 12 which, oh, by the way, just so you know, Paul was not one of the original 12. And he actually refers to the 12 because some people, some people will say, well, Paul was the replacement for Judas, but he wasn't. Uh, some people will say Paul was God's replacement for, for Judas because they'll say, they'll say that, that they, they ordained it once, one to fulfill his place, but God chose Paul. And people will say that, but Paul still refers to the 12 as separate from himself when he speaks of who witnessed Jesus. So you have these 12 apostles. Yeah. Did you follow all that? Yeah. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah. So because apostle uh, has, I think it has the use of the, the original 12, the original 12 that Jesus ordained. And then it has a use of, um, of a function of people who um, perform apostolic work, which is being foundational leaders in establishing the work of God in any area. Churches are built on the foundation. I, I spoke a while ago of 
city with foundations and Paul, Abraham seeking the, the foundation builders in church life, according to the Bible, are apostles and prophets. Church is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Um, specifically because apostles and prophets are the carriers of the revelatory knowledge of God. They have the revelation and they have it firsthand. Now, the word apostle didn't go away, which is it's really fascinating also because the word apostle is not really, it's not really a, a specifically religious word, certainly not a, it's not a, a Hebraic word, the, the word um, pro- prophet was. And, and typically when you speak of prophets later on in the Bible, you're referring to the Old Testament prophets. And specifically when you come to the apostles, you're speaking of the New Testament apostles. So again, revelatory. Everybody all right? I didn't put a bunch of this in your notes. And uh, so I'm, so I'm kind of doing what I do. All right. Um, so going back typically in the new covenant you had the apostolic leadership you had some other people that are called apostles and then the leaders of the church were typically appointed by the apostles nobody voted on elders they were appointed all right the eldership was appointed And the eldership was appointed to look after the church. Now, our church has, um, (coughs) we we have a, a variety of ways that eldership works out. I think it's just worth telling here because people, do you guys ever wonder how your church is governed? I tell about it in the foundations class so that people know. <clears throat> but in general, if you're ordained, you're an ordained, you're ordained as an elder. <clears throat> and the elder can be called overseer, pastor, or, um, or elder in our church. In our church, the, the words you would use would be overseer, elder, or pastor. And if you're taking notes, you'll, you'll, this will help you. You can write this down. The overseers of our church are actually elders who are outside the church. They're ordained clergy, ministers. They don't live in our community uh, and they don't have anything to do with the day-to-day operations of the church. They're people to whom I'm accountable. And it's an intentional structure that I set up when we began the church so that I would not be um, in charge without accountability. And look, look, the, the, the temptation range is the same. It's always been money, sex, and power. If you don't think that's the, the temptation grid, then you need to remember the law of the king in the Old Testament where the king was told not to have too much guns, gold, or girls. really true and and so listen the violations in those areas would call for the outside overseers to come in investigate what's happening here and deal with me personally and I, I've said all the time I would be accountable to do whatever they asked me to do congregation knows that anybody you know a lot of times people who will lead will try to get around that but ultimately you'll lose your church if you do that Ultimately, people won't follow you. So, so that's one kind of way overseers are used. Um, overseers, they are elders. I'm the, I'm the pastor. I'm an elder. We have pastors, plural. They're all elders. We also have elders who don't function as pastors. That kind of, so our church has, uh, out of the pastors, three of the pastors also function as elders with three lay elders. And, and the purpose of this group is to, is to meet for any large issues of the church that need, to, that need uh, prayer direction or, or even some level of governance. 
I'm just telling you how our church functions. You say, is this in the Bible? The principles are in the Bible. This structure is not in the Bible. It's not against the Bible because it has, it has accountability and it has order. There are a lot of people who are very, very devoted to the fact that there's definite, unarguable system of government in the Bible. And I would say there's a definite, unarguable system of government in the Bible and you try to describe it and you'll at some point mess it up every time. Or morph it into something else every time. And I, I really think that God is willing for his people to be kind of practical. If you read about how they solved problems in the Bible, they were pretty practically solved. Um, the elders do what I said, and then what I told you, and then the pastors are a group of elders who run the day-to-day operations of the church. So there's three kinds of elders. Overseers that oversee the senior pastor. Um, pastors and elders who oversee the spiritual health of the church. And the, the pastoral team who oversees um, the, the, the day-to-day ministries of the church. We also, by the way, ordain both men and women. And I probably should have put this next passage in your notes. So if you want to add this to your notes, you would go to, um, especially Romans chapter 16. And I'm going to read to you from a translation that you don't have. Um, Now, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is also a minister of the assembly in Chintria, so that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the holy ones and may assist her regarding whatever things she may need from you. She has been a protectress of many, myself included. Give greetings to uh, Prisca and Aquila, my fellow laborers of the Christ, the anointed one, Jesus, who risked their own neck on my behalf, to whom not only I, but all the assembly of the Gentiles also give thanks, as well as to the assembly at their home. Greet my beloved Epignetus, uh, Asia's first fruit for the anointed one. Greet Mary, who has undertaken many labors for you. And greet my kinsfolk and fellow prisoners, Andronicus and Junia, who are especially notable among the apostles. Now, why did I read that passage to you? First of all, because I wanted you to know that the letter to the Roman to, to the Romans, the most significant, uh, well. I won't, that's too much to say, but certainly among the letters of Paul, it's esteemed probably at at the highest point of of all of his theological works. That letter, um, and, and the church at Rome was not a church that Paul started, but the letter was delivered by Phoebe, a deacon. She's called a minister in your passage or a servant in your Bibles. And it's the same word as the word for deacon. Diaconus. She is a deacon. <laughs> you come on down to the passage about Andronicus and Junia. Some translations have Junius. There's a reason. And if you study the history of biblical translations and follow the ancient text, you will find that at some point they changed the word from Junia to Junius because it says Andronicus and Junia uh, among the apostles. In other words, it just said a woman was an apostle. Um, If you want a a serious study of this idea, you can get a book uh, called Junia is Not Alone by Scott McKnight. And he goes through great detail on it. This is a subject that fascinates you. 
And, and you can follow the history of how that was, how that was worked out. But let me just read to you one little piece here that's interesting. Is this boring? Is this okay? I worry if I'm, I have two problems. Either if I bore you or if I, um, what, uh, get um, too academic. Um, the accusative form of the name Judea, Junia, and this is a note in a, in a translation, of whom nothing is known beyond this passing reference, but whose sex was uncontentiously acknowledged throughout the patristic era Tradition assumed that Andronicus and Junia were husband and wife. This is during the patristic era, the earliest uh, fathers of the church. They all saw it as a woman and as she was the wife of, of Andronicus. John Chrysostom, do you all know that name? His name means golden-throated one. It's probably a, a nickname because he was a great, great preacher and one of the early fathers. John Chrysostom, for instance, opined that Junia must have been a woman of superlative wisdom inasmuch as Paul accords her the title apostle. In later centuries, however, some anxiety was occasioned by that title being attached to a woman and in protecting later more, more rigidly precise understandings of the apostolate and episcopacy back upon Paul, some writers started claiming that the reference was actually to a man named Junius or Julius. As far as we can tell, the first to make this argument was Gilles of Rome. Catch this, 1243 he was born. In other words, 1,240 years after Christ, 12, and, and in his adulthood, so that would have been, let's, let's, let's go further than that. It was that before Junia was challenged as to, as to her gender uh, because it made the church uncomfortable about its present stances in those days. I didn't really mean to get into this, but this is fun, right? This is fun. And... And so people, and I, I say this because one of the unique features about our church is our uh, egalitarian stance on males and females, that we, that we ordain men and women. I, I do, by the way, still believe there's men and women. <laughs> and and um, we don't have to talk about that in more detail as we, as we keep going. We have to. Uh, I, I never dreamed stuff. Uh, th there's stuff happening in Christendom nowadays that I never dreamed that would happen. I, I never dreamed that a pastor would have to give opinions about vaccinations. But don't ask me. Don't ask me. <laughs> ask Margaret, the pediatrician. Ask Margaret. <laughs> and... and uh, uh, Bird flew off the limb. Come back, Alan. Oh. The question of the, of the ordination of women. The actual foundation of why we would put women in church leadership is entirely new covenant, new creation. What do you mean by that? Well, when do we, when do we see the eruption of new covenant, new creation? the resurrection what do we see happen at the time of the resurrection and before the resurrection it's notable before the resurrection here's what we note the apostolic witness to Jesus virtually unanimously vaporized at the cross and before the cross not John, but those original witnesses of Jesus, those ones commissioned who didn't vaporize, the women. So what does God do? What does God himself do? He places the testimony of the of the resurrection of Jesus on the lips of women through their tears 
A crying woman in the first century would not be your witness. She would not be considered credible. And God said, I'll take that. And establish an indestructible witness. So literally, the first heralds of the risen Jesus were the women who did not abandon him at his death and did not abandon him at his grave. God did this. Yeah, you can give that a hand. Uh, Therefore, don't be so, uh, that's why, don't be skittish about about women in mission who say, well, why, why do you, why do you have women preachers? I said, because the Lord did it. He raised them up. Um, very interestingly, this, this issue has just come up very, very profoundly in the news this week with, uh, with, a, with a very famous evangelical preacher denouncing Beth Moore. Y'all know Beth Moore? Do y'all know Beth Moore? Let me see. Y'all know Beth Moore? Yeah, denouncing Beth Moore. Because she preaches. Um, yeah. Yeah. I ain't scared to name him. His, it was John MacArthur. John MacArthur said, said in a public meeting that Beth Moore ought to go home. And the crowd laughed. You know, and, and, and Beth, listen, the best thing she could do is just get up and preach. I, remember when Jesus healed on the Sabbath? They said, you, you can possibly be Messiah, you're healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, um, is, it, is it righteous to do good on the Sabbath? Can you do good on the Sabbath? So I've always piggybacked on that and said, can women do good on the Sabbath? Anyway, and, and so well, listen, what I tend, do tend to do is say to people, listen, I know it's controversial and I know that you have uh, scriptures that trouble you in, in, in 1 Timothy and in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I know you have scriptures that trouble you and I know that you have basis for being troubled and you have tradition for being troubled. But I go ahead and tell people up front, uh, we went ahead a long time ago and decided we would give people all the reasons they needed to say no to us so that the people who are with us would want to be with us. So, so I said, why do you ordain women? I say, because my wife told me to. <laughs> She's shaking her head back there, of course. Uh, I, I was a late adopter. I didn't want to do that. I argued over that. I argued over that a lot. And I just had to puzzle over the scriptures and puzzle over the scriptures and keep looking at it and keep questioning what's our tradition and what's, what's, uh, what's really the will of God. And what I kept seeing, to be honest with you, is I kept seeing that I don't care what group it is. In every group, God would raise up women who, I'm sorry, you couldn't call it anything else but preaching. Who, who was that Catholic mother, Angelica, was it? Used to have that dub program on EWTN. Oh, I used to watch the program. I got, I got to go where her program was filmed. I thought it was cool. I thought she's a cool old... Y'all know who I'm talking about? Is it, am I saying the name right? Is that her name? Um, and then the Baptist, you know, we had our own... We, we had, we had uh, Lottie Moon to begin with, and then we had... Uh, Bertha Smith, and everywhere you go, you'd go, well, they all got one. And Miss Bertha Smith, I loved her because Miss Bertha would get up with a flannel board in the Baptist church. And, and listen, what, what in, in those days, in the days when she was coming up, women would teach children with flannel boards. And so she would get up with a flannel board in the whole congregation and treat it like it was a preschool. And it was just an anointing. So let me, I'm already on this. Let me just keep going on this a little bit. I say, well, look, listen, we don't ordain women because of a rights issue. Those who do it because of rights, those churches are dead in the death grip and they die. 
It's not about rights. We do it because of anointing. It's about Holy Spirit is on that one. I don't know. Paige, what do you think about this? You might have grown up this way. <laughs> Paige and Orly got married a couple weeks ago, and her mama was here. Her mama's the preacher at her church. And uh, some of y'all met her. You never forget her if you meet her. It's true. It's true. So listen, for us, it's a, it's a matter of the spirit, not a matter of rights. I don't live in that world. By the way, there are some rights in the Bible. There are some that are in there that we could talk about. And I, I, I love, whew, I got, I, I'm sorry, I have rabbits running through my head. Yeah, me, 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 me. Okay, anyway. So then what happens next is we get this, this descriptor of overseers. See, I, I brought myself back. Now, if there's anything that I've done that's miserable in my life as a, as a Christian, it's sit with groups of people who took these descriptors and measured people according to these descriptors. And I spent years of misery with people doing this. And I, and I wish I had known about that idea that you could find dirt in a gold mine. <laughs> so now remember, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy and Timothy is taking over leadership. And Timothy, his name means timid and everything we can discern about him meant that he really lived up to his name. Um, and... And, and much of what Paul's writing is, is this. And so Timothy's uh, going to need to ordain elders. And, and Paul says, listen, here's what this is. This, he, Paul, this is Paul saying, this is how you find an elder. Think of it that way. So well, you know, what's an elder? Paul says, well, you how to find one. And the idea is God makes them, you see them. Okay, that's the idea. Now, the word that I have avoided as I'm talking to you is the word qualifications. Um, I have a little thing here. I just said, when I looked at that, I just, I just really randomly, I didn't do a deep study. I just randomly said, what, what do we have here in this list? If you look over this list, you have character described. What kind of person am I? You don't have the, the, the there's not much that you don't have in your notes well, there is a lot that I'm talking about. You know, I mean, you know, um, relationships. So, so, so what kind of person am I? Overseer is above reproach. What kind of relationships do I have? Well, he's the husband of one wife. And if there's ever been a passage in scripture that was parsed to torturing degrees, it's husband of one wife. And the, literally, the best way I think to understand that is that he's, he says there's one woman man. What, huh? Yes. Yes, you don't have concubines. You know. Listen, here's an interesting thing. Don't get it wrong. If you were in the, in the ancient world and you were studying the Bible, you would say, well, listen, leaders get to have concubines. Leaders get to have more than one wife. And the early church had to make decisions on this and say, no, no, no. In the gospel, the will of God goes back to the original pattern, which was the husband and the wife, the wife designed for the husband. So we go back to the original pattern. So even though through biblical history, we've taken some paths that, by the way, God wasn't all that serious at sometimes about correcting. He seemed to be up to some other things and we don't know why he didn't correct them and he didn't tell us and it's none of our business. Because <laughs> he doesn't have to check with us. But when it comes down to the highest revelation you get, the revelation of God in Christ and the revelation of the movement that comes out of that, then he says, husband and one wife. All right. So um, how do I relate to responsibility or stewardship? I talked about stewardship last week. He manages his household well. And listen, there's not been an honest preacher that ever lives that hadn't had a child act in a way that he thought, yeah, I probably better quit. 
What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think, Elder? Elder Errol? I'm telling you, when my kids went through the teenage years, I was like, I would, I would go to my leaders all the time and say, when do y'all want me to quit? And you know what they would say? They would say, Pastor, if you abandoned your responsibility, that'd be one thing, but you never did. And I would go, okay. It's funny how you can go from the bottom of the shoe. Because listen, again, none of us are going to do this perfectly. That's why he says manages his own household well. He didn't say, dude doesn't have a problem at home. Experience. He comes along and he says, oh, listen, don't get the guy that just said yes to Jesus. He doesn't know who he is, much less who the father is yet. Don't do that. And we've all, by the way, made that mistake of promoting somebody too fast. I've made that mistake. Um, reputation. How am I regarded by others? It actually does matter. It actually does matter. This doesn't mean that you're not going to find anybody that somebody doesn't have something bad to say about them. You know? It doesn't mean that, but it means how is this one known? What are they known for? What is their, what is their reputation in the world? And if somebody has a bad reputation, it doesn't mean they can't be an elder. It means they've got to get it cleaned up. Go get it cleaned up. When I got saved, I went to cleaning up my reputation. Anthony told about that beautifully up for in his own life at the men's uh, men's retreat this last weekend. And about the process of that. Um, by the way, if you ever want to, if you ever like, were like, well, how would you do that? Uh, I don't, I'm not going to teach on that tonight. But if you wanted to talk privately, I've got some really good pointers about how to clean up your mess. Um, by the way, Danny Silk's book, Unpunishable, has just come out, and it's got a lot about in there about cleaning up your mess when you make a mess. All right, so the qualification trap, how to read the scriptures. Now, strangely enough, this is where I started when I was going to say how you read the scriptures is everything. And one of the ways of how you read the scriptures is if you read the scriptures as if you're looking for the... You're like, I'm going to go to the Bible and study everything it says about church government, and I'm going to do a biblical church government. All you're going to do is fight with everybody you know. That's all you're going to do. You study the scriptures, you come to an agreement with a group of people, and you walk a certain way together. And I, I, by the way, I have no problem with people who say, well, I want to walk with the ancient church. I've had some friends of mine who, who when they studied church history, they said, I want, to, I want to go back and connect with the churches that were there from the beginning that have more foundations like that. I say to them, go. I'm like... I tell them, I have the apostolic gospel built on the foundation of the apostles of the apostles and prophets. So I'm I'm good with that. You go. You, you can you can go back to Rome or or Constantinople or Canterbury. Go back. It's fine with me. If you don't know those illusions. Don't even bother. Um. So, um, in other words, I'm saying don't read the scriptures thinking that you're going to find an incontrovertible code of how to order the church or how to govern the church. What you're going to find is a relational framework of how the church came into being and how it has always operated. And I believe we're in that framework all right so how do qualifications work for instance like so somebody's somebody's qualified and the next day they mess up or this is what we do somebody we we go we really looked them over they're qualified you know it's like but i don't know if you ever it's like shopping for fruit you go shop for fruit and you get it today and then you bring it home tomorrow and it's got a big bruise on it i got unqualified fruit (laughs) gotta throw it out you know, the lesson is eat the fruit the day you buy it, whatever. But, but how do qualifications work? Like, 
for sure, somebody can go out and do something so egregious that they need to stand down from their responsibilities. But, but there's not a word in the Bible to say, can they ever get back in them? Everybody will quote to me, David. I'm like, that's great. That's thousand years before Jesus. And after that was given the gospel, the, the cross, the resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, all those things happened. And I got nothing after that 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 relates. People say, well, we got Peter. No, Peter was before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And and so you got nothing that's really clear, except you have the word Galatians 6, 1, restore. And I think I already talked about that among y'all with it. And you have that. So how do qualifications work? I think here's how it works. I'm looking for somebody to be an, uh, over the work of God. So then I go, who can I find that's like that? And then and put them over the work. And they mess up. This is the kingdom of God, radical forgiveness. They get up, they clean up their mess, and then the, then the leadership decides again whether they should go back into it or not. And I do think, just so you'll know, if you've been a poor steward with looking after people and if you've exploited the people you were given to protect, you got to be real slow to say, do that again. You got to be real slow. And here's what I've begun to say. I've begun to say, well, the people who were wounded by that person, what do they say? I want to know what they say. Because let me see, let me get this right. You're going to restore them. You're going to restore the, the, the offender, but you're not going to restore the people who are broken by the offender. Let's get everybody restored. Restored means healed, brought back to our how we were before. Let's get everybody well. So I think the best pattern of restoration means the person being restored first gets restored to their senses and to themselves and to the Lord. And then you go to work on restoring the mess they made and that means restoring the people they've wounded and then you can talk about restoration that's a whole other thing but I don't like the word qualifications it is it's first of all can, can I tell you the truth it's not in the Bible and that always matters to me so I put qualifications versus qualities and guess what? The word qualities is not in the Bible either. <laughs> I've already re referred to the absence of structural guidelines in the manual. So let me show you something here. Look at this. 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us precious and great I love the King James, great and exceeding precious promises. I like that. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, uh, very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And I love this. On your faith, virtue, on your virtue, knowledge, your knowledge, add self-control, your self-control, add steadfastness, steadfastness, godliness, godliness, brotherly affection, and with brotherly affection, love. And then it says, if these qualities, now listen to me, the word qualities is not in the Bible. There's not a Greek word for qualities. You know what the Bible says? It just says, if these are yours, these what? Virtues. These descriptions, these uh, impartations, these <laughs> adornments, this, this life. Qualities is not there. And so I, I, I'm going to be very honest. You see me, I run from qualifications and I run from qualities because I think they set up in our mind some artificial structure that causes us to treat people legally rather than relationally. I always want to treat people relationally, not legally. Legally is for the court. Let them do that. Relationally is for the kingdom.
we do that. If these are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord. All right. And then here again, three times the word qualities. Guess what? Same thing. It's always these. If these. Some people say these things. Well, these things are not there. It's the word is these. If these are there. Um, so I'm hurrying because I've gone slow. Nuanced but significant distinctions. Qualities become qualifications which become means by which we judge, include, eliminate, and or nullify one another. And the goal is simply to find those who can do the work in ministry and be counted on to bring honor to the work. So, I'm not going to lie to you. There's been a few times in my ministry that I've gone to people, literally gone to people and said, this is what I did. What are you going to do with me? I have a... I have a long, strange story that I won't that I won't put you through, but I threatened a man's life. And I meant it. And came to my senses a little bit. Called my elders together. Told them what he had done. Told them that I told him what I would do to him. He had harmed one of my children. And I said, sat with my leaders and I said, you need to know I did this and I'm not sorry. (laughs) One of my leaders grabbed me and hugged me and he said, I'm so glad you're my pastor. Just so you'll know, nobody was killed in the filming of this story. (laughs) I didn't harm him. I don't ever want to harm anyone. I I left. But it was in my heart. It was in my heart. And I submitted. I went and took myself to the leaders and said, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. I'm like, so glad they didn't tell me to go find him and say, I'm sorry. (laughs) They, they didn't. Two or three times I've done it. But I was living in a, in, a, in a qualification. But listen, what I was really living in is a relationship world. I was, I was living in relationship to people. And I went and said, this, look, look, guys, y'all might not want me for my year leader because this is the kind of dude I am. And anyway, praise God, he's spared me from myself for 40-something years. This, does that scare y'all? No. All right. What's a deacon? Somebody say, what's a deacon? Okay, let me tell you what it's not for sure. It's not an office somebody holds. The word deacon is a descriptive word of somebody who has been recognized by the church to serve the body. I was always tickled in in the denomination I was in. We didn't have elders in that denomination. We had pastors and deacons. And we would make a big deal. And we would would have meetings to stress over the definition of of, uh, these qualifications. And oh my goodness. And we would sit with people and, 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 you know, go through their whole life and parse through their whole life. Like, you know, oh, my goodness, we were looking for gold. We were looking for splinters. (laughs) And, and, uh, And then we would elect them to an office and honor them and give them a title. And then I'm telling you, the church spent endless hours trying to figure out, now what do they do? We had to invent jobs for these people. And if the truth be told, the only way those jobs got done was if their wives did them. Can we talk? I'm telling you, man. 
Y'all know uh, Yonggi Cho? Y'all know the name Yonggi Cho? Y'all know he grew a church to a, I think he grew his church to a million. I think somebody has exceeded that somewhere, but he grew, huh? he grew his church. To, was it, did he get to a million? Huh? In Korea. He was pastor in Korea. And he did it through a cell system. And I, I, I used to re, uh, read his book, um, the, what was the dimension? What was the fourth dimension? That was it. And fourth dimension one and two. I remember, man, I was in a Baptist church and I read those books and I cried, crawled under my desk crying and saying, oh God, because <laughs> the power of God on that man and on what he was doing. And he did this cell system where he, and listen, everybody always thinks it's in the, the mechanism of the, of, the, of the program. No, it's in the anointing on the person that's hearing the Lord and finding the anointed path. And yeah, I'm going to admit that's a frustration of every man, that, man or woman that's ever led a ministry. You go, how do I find that? And, and frankly, every time we imitate the system, we don't get the same results. Because we forget we're supposed to be following the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. We're supposed to be following the voice of the one who calls us. Anyway, that's enough of that. I just wanted to say that the, his church never exploded until he put women in charge of the cell groups. Deacons likewise. And just so you know, there's no word deacon. Deacon is an invented word. Every once in a while, when you want to confuse people theologically, you take a word from another language and you just sound it out and then stick it in the language that you have. We've done it with some big words. Y'all know the word baptize is not an English word. It, it, it's, a, it's a Greek word that was anglicized. But this word deacon, nothing's ever been more pernicious than this. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified and not double-tongued. And then it gives the, the, the list, right? And it's a good list. I love this list. It's, a good, sto- it's good stuff. Uh, okay, so what is that deacon? Problem solvers. So here's the way. Here's how you do deacons. You get a problem, and the person that you put over the problem is a deacon. Because the word simply means servant. We need somebody to park the cars. We need somebody to clean the toilets. We need somebody to take care of the children in the in the back. We need somebody. Can we? You see what I'm talking about? Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, these are simply two kinds of Jewish people, by the way. Some of them lived in the Greek lands and spoke Greek. Some of them lived in the biblical land and probably spoke Aramaic. But what had happened is God had poured out his spirit on, on, on Jerusalem. And so a bunch of people came from all over the world and stayed. And I want you to know when visitors come and they won't go home, you have problems. In this case, and I could go into more detail about this, but in this case, you had a, a linguistic kind of a racial problem. You had, you had, you had all kind of problems. And and listen, people even in those days made it about what it wasn't about. They made it about their identity, although it might have been about it. A complaint was made and the 12 were summoned and the full number of the disciples. This is, by the way, this is a big deal. People weren't getting food. That's a kind of a big deal. It's like, not like this is nothing. This is not like we put the snacks out and somebody ate them all up. Not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. You see that word serve tables? It's the word deacon. It's exactly the word deacon. 
It's exactly the same word deacons must be. Exactly the same word. Because the meaning of the word was to wait tables. And waiting tables became a synonym for taking care of one another or solving a problem. Serving. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. Ah, the qualifications just got truncated. We want, we want good reputation, wise, and filled with the spirit. We're going to point them over this. Give us seven will do the work. Good biblical number. But we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And listen, this is just, how many of you see this as practical wisdom? This is not an angel bringing a scroll down out of heaven saying this is what God said to do. So this practical, this piece of practical wisdom became the model for how we do church. But in the end, we, we, turned, we turned a position of humility, kindness, and generosity into a title of esteem and power. And we brought into the church all kinds of factious spirits. What they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose, I love this, Stephen, a man of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, and Nicanor, Nicanor, I don't know exactly how you say it, but that word is the one um, that I think, um, no, it goes on, it says, and Parmenas and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch, and you end up having um, the church tradition that say that guy went sideways and is the leader of the Nicolaitans. They sat before the, the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so this is, by the way, this has got me thinking. This has got me thinking. Just that it's a good thing to pray and lay hands on everybody that you give a business, give a responsibility to. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples were multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. They solved a problem and evangelism increased. And then what's cool is immediately we said, and Stephen, uh, full of grace and power, was doing wonders and signs and miracles. You guys are getting a, a, a really, um, like I said, this is, this is probably not as exciting as some of the lessons I've given. Is that all right? Is it helpful? Um, here, so here's what happens. This, this is what's interesting. This is the principle that I always talk about. This is the principle of always, this is that principle of doing something small and God's saying, I've appointed you for something big. He's, so, so the ones who were over the spiritual life of the church and over the ministry of the gospel said, this is, this is not for us. This is for some others. And so these others are called table servants. The table waiters. And then you read immediately, what's the Bible say? Faithful with little, put you over much. We read immediately, and Stephen, immediately we get the story of one of these guys, full of grace and power, was doing signs and wonders. <laughs> want to do signs and wonders do some menial task and then in the midst of it say oh can I pray for you and then we read that it tells about the enemies he got and, and it says in verse 10 but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking oh now he's doing the ministry of the word then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes <laughs> these are the, uh, of the Jews. And they stirred up the people of the elders and scribes and they came upon him, seized him and brought him before the council. Now, just to bring this thing full circle. This deacon now becomes a mighty spokesman that they can't resist. They put him on trial and they say, why are you doing this? And the guy gives a Bible study that'll blow your mind. 
It's a Bible study about how God was never limited by the temple in his work among man. And when they heard it, they said, that confirms all our suspicions. He's speaking against uh, blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they go on to say, it'll be the end of this place if we're not careful. And so he confirms their suspicions. They stone him to death. The apostle Paul is approving. And you know, you had to take off your coat so you could get a good throw. He's holding the cloaks and they're stoning him to death. And I still, I'm always fascinated by this. The guy who then comes out of that whole experience and teaches the doctrine of the body of Christ as the temple of God was Paul, who was in that case, at that time, Saul, and he got it from Stephen, the table waiter. You're never limited. Your ceiling is never limited by your humble service.